Thank you, Barack, for. So thank you, Barack, for for uh, having me, uh, and it's a pleasure to to have a conversation with you. Um, so my name is Mike Quinn. I uh, grew up in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Um, as the son of two high school teachers as as parents. Um, I had zero connection to Africa or entrepreneurship, actually, even in my in my family. Um, but I, I think I my parents gave me a very strong. Um, very strong social values and actually seeing them like work in the in the public sector and be teachers and the passion they had for that, I think was very influential in my early life. Um, did engineering as an undergrad degree and that was a huge uh, turning point for me because I didn't actually enjoy it. I wasn't very technical, um, but I, I finished the degree and joined um, an organization called Engineers Without Borders uh, that um, this was the last year of my undergrad degree um, that was sending young engineering graduates to Africa on like one to two year long volunteer placements. And uh, I ended up going to Ghana with them for a year uh, back in 2003, uh, working on a rural agriculture project and never really turned back after that. I did a second placement uh, with the same organization with Engineers Without Borders in Zambia for a year and a half. Um, and this was early career, like in the development sector, uh, but I, I was starting to realize like the entrepreneurial flair I think I had because um, it was very, very young organization, but they would partner with us with uh, with like local NGOs on the ground. And we had a lot of freedom and flexibility and, and a really good community of other volunteers. Uh, but I, I learned a lot about poverty. Um, I saw the opportunities everywhere. Um, and but I, I was also realizing that the development sector um, wasn't going to I wasn't going to be able to achieve the impact that I, I thought was possible. And I had a lot of questions at that time. So I um, after two and a half years of volunteering in, in the development sector, I, I went uh, to the UK, did um, a one year master's in international development. And then I, I got a very lucky break uh, where I got into the MBA program at Oxford University um, as a scholar for social entrepreneurship. Um, and it was a time where social entrepreneurship was a buzzword and people were asking, what does it even have to do in a business school? To be honest, um, I don't think very many people even applied for it. I, I would never have got in today with, with, the, um, with the skills I had at the time, but I was kind of very early, like timing was, was really lucky uh, for me. But um, that, was, that was really what lit the spark for me because then I... Um, I used that year in business school to really think about, you know, how do I become an entrepreneur and start a business? And I, my criteria were I wanted to, to move to Africa, um, commit to something long-term um, that could make a difference. And I ended up um, meeting a whole bunch of investors uh, through my MBA that kept talking about how they wanted to invest in local entrepreneurs in Africa, but they didn't have deal flow. Um, and this was at a time like impact investing was not a word yet. Um, it was like uh, 2008. And um, I, I put my hand up and said, that's a problem I can solve. Um, and I managed to convince one investment fund to buy me a plane ticket to go back to Zambia um, to find entrepreneurs they can invest in. And my pitch to them was that I will stick around and help you build the business. Um, and I met these two brothers who were just coincidentally founding one of the very first fintechs on the continent. Um, and a series of like my life is just like a, a series of lucky events, like one after the other. Um, 
And they were very early stage and they had no idea that any investors from outside of like their so small network would be able to like, and especially from you know, global investors would want to invest in their business. They, they thought that, you know, maybe they could get some, this product going and then a bank, a local bank would want to buy it or invest into them. Um, but I was able to, to bring this U.S. investor and we, we closed what was probably the first seed round in, in the fintech um, sector in Africa back in 2009. Um, then went through a, a wild series of ups and downs and, and ended up uh, closing, um, again, what was probably the first Series A in, uh, in the fintech sector in uh, early 2012, um, which was led by um, Pierre Omidyar's um, Omidyar Network, and, and Pierre Omidyar was the eBay founder, um, and Axion, which uh, has since spun off a, a fintech global fintech fund called Corner Capital. Um, so I'll, I'll pause there, but it was like, that, that's how I got my start and, and how I got to my first company. Uh, you wrote a book. What inspired you to write this book, reflecting on your experiences building Zuna? Or uh, what do you think that it is uh, is the most important takeaway you want also uh, these uh, uh, after reading your book? Your yeah. book name is Failing to Win, Hard-Earned Lessons from a Purpose-Driven Startup. So you also shared your failures. Yeah, so um, maybe I'll, I'll give you a little bit of the arc of, of what happened at Zona, this this first company that, that um, I, I co-founded in Zambia. So um, I, I very quickly, um, after we got the investment um, and I, I started working with the two two brothers um, who are the original founders, they um, asked me to become the CEO. Um, and uh, they, they, you know, they were they were brothers. So they um, they uh, I, I was facilitating decision-making a lot. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> and, um, and I, I had the investor uh, relationships. Um, so, and we kind of crystallized this vision of a cashless Africa, of like, how do we actually, you know, now we can get this investment. How do we scale this thing? And um, I did two other things. Um, one was I had a, a personal connection to um, the then CFO of Google, um, who, who um, came in as an early angel investor. Um, and he happened to be the uh, um, early chair and first investor of Engineers Without Borders um, that I volunteered with. So I, I was able to keep that relationship warm. And then second, um, I convinced my parents uh, to mortgage their house and lend me $100,000 to go all in on the business. Um, this, this was probably the scariest thing I've ever done and the hardest pitch I've ever made to any investor. Um, but I, I was like knee deep in uh, um, student debt and I had no like no savings. Um, Luckily, my fiance and, and um, then wife um, kind of had a, a stable enough job to pay rent. Um, but I, I went I wanted to really be a partner in this business. And that was the moment um, where my co-founder, Brad, would always say, you know, when you have um, bacon and eggs for breakfast, the chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. And so he would say that was the moment I became pig and actually became a co-founder um, and then the CEO of the business. And. Uh, we had lots of ups and downs, but um, it was like generally trending up and we, we hit the hockey stick curve growth um, probably a year and a half after we closed the Series A investment. Um, and at our peak, we had scaled to serve. Um, we were actively serving a quarter of Zambia's adult population. So about two million monthly active customers. Um, we were processing 60 to 70 million dollars a month of money transfers. We expanded successfully into a second market uh, next door in Malawi and had visions of really going big. And 
Um, where, where the, the story um, diverted was the last few years was really, really tough because um, first the, the macro environment shifted. So we, we started um, experiencing big headwinds in, in the form of uh, like currency devaluations, um, lots of operational challenges on the ground that were like linked to the market. Um, we had like a cholera epidemic, which was, you know, everybody in the world now knows what a pandemic is with COVID. But we experienced this in Zambia when like the market went into lockdown because of a cholera epidemic. And then our whole business like had to shut down for like a few weeks. Um, and I remember trying to explain this to, to my board and, and it was like very, you know, people didn't actually have that um, that reference point of like, what do you mean? Like, you, you know, these agents can't trade and people aren't sending money anymore. Um, but what really, I think, uh, crippled us, we, we ended up raising a big Series B. We had a, a failed expansion into, a, into a, a new market and realized like that going country to country in Africa wasn't as simple as, as it was in like an investor pitch deck. Um, the operational challenges and the complexity of that expansion um, was, was much harder than we anticipated. We didn't design it very well. Um, and then at the end, um, we had a, a, a big investor uh, pull out at the very last second, like after four months of due diligence, um, of what was a, a $40 million Series C round. Um, that, that ended up being the, the thing we couldn't recover from. Um, we, at that point, we had actually, we had a very strong business in Zambia and Malawi. We were facing increasing competition from, from some telcos, but um, we were evolving into what would have become like a digital bank for Southern Africa. And we needed a lot of capital to fund that business plan. And um, the, the investor actually pulled out for, for a lot of reasons that were, were, were due to them and a shift in strategy and a shift in management team that, you know, that I won't go into. Um, but also the, the ref reflection was, you know, we were in a small market trying to raise a lot of money, like well ahead of our time. Um, and, and it was a hard sell to get, um, you know, investors to pour in like tens of millions of dollars into a Zambian business competing against telcos um, with, with kind of a, a limited market size. Um, and, and that became what was uh, the heart, like probably the hardest period of my life because the the nine months after the deal fell apart, um, the only thing we could do was slash costs. Um, and any founder will know that when you um, you actually are are cutting costs in your business, you accelerate your cash burn because um, you have to pay severances to people, um, and the the morale of the company collapses. Um, we couldn't drop pricing in the market when the competition was increasing because um, we would have been bankrupt instantly because we no, no longer have the, the investment coming in. Our early investors were kind of tapped out and couldn't put any more money in. No new investor would touch us because there was no lead in the round. And, and they were all asking us like, I thought your deal was gonna close. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was an extremely, extremely difficult time. We had like 250 staff at that point, right? So it was, it was a proper company, but um, I ended up leaving in May, 2019, um, just under uh, like about a year after the, the investment round collapsed. Um, and we ended up doing um, a deal with our, our kind of shareholders to put in a bit more money. Our lenders would convert some of their debt to equity and we would shrink the business down into like a really small um, team and then spin out a new like B2B strategy. And so the, the original vision of our, um, of our company um, was, was no longer, um, but the, there's still like a, 
kernel there and, and a technology and a strategy and like a lot of relationships um, that we felt had value. And um, it was a natural time for me to, to step aside. Um, in hindsight, I probably should have done it a bit earlier. Um, but yeah, coming to your question of, um, I didn't actually set out to write a book. Um, I just left this extremely intense um, experience for 10 years. Like every day was intense, but the last year was like extra intense where I wasn't sleeping. It was hard to be present with my kids. Um, you know, it was just like nonstop stress and pressure. And then suddenly I was like all by myself. My emails stopped. Um, I wasn't in meetings anymore. I just like, you know, my, I could drop my kids off at school. Um, my wife was at work and then I'm like, what do I do? I I'd go for a hike or a run because I was living in Cape town at the time. So I got to, to experience the nature a little bit, but you know, you can't exercise for eight hours a day, every day. Um, and I, I would tell this story that I've told you, but I, I actually, if I shared it with anybody, I would be in tears and like the emotion was so raw. And, and I was thinking at the time, I'm like, geez, you know, like, I like we failed to win. And like, I really felt like a failure. Like I was the CEO of this business. I'd sold this dream of like a cashless Africa. You know, we had raised $35 million, um, you know, before the round collapsed um, of, of other people's money that um, didn't have a hope of getting paid back. Um, so I really felt, felt like a failure. And I had the, the title, like I remember being on a run and I was like thinking about this and I just wrote it down um, when I got back and, and I had a lot of encouragement from um, both my wife, but also other founders that I would talk to who I would tell the story of kind of everybody's like, what happened at Zona? And I'd, I'd share some of the stories and it'd be like people would respond saying that's really intense. But then they would reciprocate with an experience that they had uh, with their board or an investment around collapsing or a failed product launch. And then. I started to realize that nobody actually talked about failure, even though everybody experienced it. And so um, that was the inspiration to actually start writing. And I, I always enjoyed writing. My mother, my mom was like an English teacher, high school English teacher, her whole career. Um, and so I had this time and I started writing. And, and what I, I learned, um, probably a few things. One was, um, I'm like, where do I start? And I wanted to, like, the, the end was very raw but I actually started at the beginning. And that was an amazing, um, gave me amazing perspective because I had to really go back in my own mind and then like search emails and start having some conversations about like, how did I even get to Africa in the first place? And how did we start the business? And how did we get it off the ground? And that was just like a, a flood of like happy memories. And I, as I wrote this, um, you know, I, I kind of was was getting over like the the what happened at the end and just remembering like the good times. And the more I, I carried on with like the story, just chronologically, I started to realize like, you know, what, we didn't actually fail. We were we were like winning the whole time. But all of the success we had was a series of like fail, 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 fail. And then like a milestone or a win. Right. And it was just like this iterative process. And um and it was like every, like, you know, becoming CEO it wasn't like I was born as a CEO. I was like, one day these two brothers are like, Hey Mike, why don't you be the CEO? And I said, okay. Right. And then we, we fought for the next three years and there was no written down like job description or formal transition plan. I didn't have any coaching early on. So it took me a long time of like figuring that out. Um, and like, you know, managing a board. The first time we got in the investors, we had huge fights between like founders and the board 
Um, and everybody's looking at me saying like, you know, Mike, you need to sort this out. And I'm, you know, founders are like, Mike, you're aligned with us. And the investors are like, we backed you, Mike. So like, you need to sort out the founders. And, um, and so I was always kind of pulled. And then eventually I, I kind of figured that out. Um, and so when I, when I had this like whole story written down, um, I, I like felt a felt a lot better. Um, B realized that, um, like, even though we failed to win in the end, it, it kind of took on this new meaning of like failing in order to win. And then like, see, I, I had like such a crystal idea of what I wanted to do next, because now I had written this down and, and like also reflected on like what I would have done differently. And then I was, then I was like, took out a piece of paper and I had a new business. Um, and it was just so clear to me. And I, I like, I didn't know exactly what it was, but I was like, I knew how I would do it differently. Right. And like the principles of like, you know, starting a business um, designed for multi-country scale, you know, asset zero headcount light capital efficient um, to not depend on lots of investors, you know, solving a, a big problem and a common pain point across lots of different markets. Um, and um, at that point, um, you know, I should accelerate my story a little bit here, but I, 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 I remember thinking, I'm like, okay, the book's done. Now I'm back to being an entrepreneur. And then um, I started sharing the, the manuscript and everybody's like, you need to publish this. <laughs> but that, that became probably the less fun part of writing the book because I, um, I realized that like, it, it ended up going through like a probably uh, 18 month editing process and required several rewrites to shape it from like my personal diary um, to like a book that like founders and other entrepreneurs could read and get value from. Um, and uh, as I was doing that, um, I was uh, starting a new business. Um, COVID happened. So like, you know, working in lockdown with kids not going to school. Um, and then my family moved from Cape Town to London because my wife got a new job. So it was like another really hectic time, but uh, um, it, it ended up being all, all worthwhile and um, yeah, just really happy that the, the book got published and, and it's got some great reviews and people like you've read it. And I've got a lot of messages from founders about how much it's helped them and how much they relate to it. Um, and then, you know, my new business boost is off the ground and, and uh, thriving at the moment. So after 10 years of Zuna, I mean, what motivated to start uh, something new with Boost? <laughs> Uh, for those less familiar, how yeah. would you describe the Boost mission and the problem you aim to solve? Yeah, let me let me answer those questions separately because I think the first one um, is the exact same question my dad asked me, but it was more, why the hell would you want to do that again once he actually read the the draft of the book? Um, my, my parents, because um, they knew I went through ups and downs at Zona, but like when they read what I wrote down, they were like like almost like hurt and like they're like i can't believe you experienced this and and um probably felt um helpless a little bit and um and yeah and then naturally for me so as as an as an entrepreneur um i i do think uh, part of it is is being you know born an entrepreneur it's like it's no longer a job for me it's like it's who i am um so i i never thought for a second about doing anything else other than starting a new business um I had to probably, people were slowing me down and saying, take a break and make sure you like, you don't do anything too, too quickly or too rash, which was great advice. But um, uh, I, I knew I was going to start again. It was just a question of kind of what and when. Um, and I knew it was going to be in Africa because I'm 
It's like, you know what, I, I'm committed to this continent and I, I, it would be a shame to have all this experience and then not actually try again and, and do something bigger and better um, and more impactful. Um, but um, th yeah, that was the motivation for me. And then the, the book and the reflections really kind of, um, and like really going deep into what happened, why did it happen? What did I learn from it? And how would I do things differently next time? That was my process I had to go through and writing it down was very helpful. And that gave me the idea for Boost, right? And um, so what Boost is now um, is uh, we are a B2B commerce platform that um, is uh, partnered with manufacturers like Unilever. They're, they're our anchor partner. Uh, we're working with, across the, uh, with them across several marks in markets in Africa and helping to digitize uh, the, the distribu their distribution network um, at the last mile. Because the, the way that um, the supply chain works in Africa and the majority of probably emerging markets and even some, um, some more advanced markets is uh, you know, Unilever will see the, the distribution at the first level of like their really big distributors, but then products that they sell like toothpaste and soap, like all these essential goods get redistributed from a, a top key distributor to a smaller wholesaler or sub distributor to a smaller retail shop um, and then sold to the consumer. And all of that redistribution happens offline, um, mostly in cash. And it is in, in Africa, it is the market. They call it general trade or like the informal economy. Um, but it is like you know, 90% of, of um, where people shop. Right. So there, there's no visibility um, for the manufacturer. There's no ability to put push promotions or build a relationship with like the retailers that are their point of sale to consumers. Um, but then the, the distributors and wholesalers that are um, the ones that are actually moving the products and playing this critical role of like interfacing between Unilever or like their their large key distributors and the, the last mile shops. Um, generally run their businesses on pen and paper. And these are also family owned businesses, generally husband and wife, like a small warehouse, maybe like, you know, uh, 10 motorbikes or some tricycles or vans or trucks to, to move products around. So they, they do distribution, but thousands and thousands of these distribution businesses um, don't have any technology and therefore also struggle um, to manage inventory orders, customers, uh, reconcile cash, and so uh, Boost has built a platform to, to really solve this problem. And, you know, think of like a Shopify for, um, for distribution um, in, you know, in Africa and, and um, one day all emerging markets. Uh, and so the, the platform is used by distributors or wholesalers to digitize like their entire business from registering the customers they supply, end-to-end -end inventory flows, payments and orders. Um, and then it provides... Um, a, a data layer uh, for, for Unilever um, and manufacturers to, to plug into to see um, what products and SKUs are being sold, when and where, um, what, and then the ability for them to also push promotions um, to the retail point of sale. And for the retailers at the, the end, um, we have a, a very simple ordering product. So we, we kind of have, you know, every, every customer in the supply chain, we have a, a product for um, and, you know, again, like, like Shopify, um, I love their, their business because they build tools. They, they believe in entrepreneurs and they build tools to enable them 
um, to, to digitize, to sell online, to grow their businesses, um, to plug in payments, to do order fulfillment, to plug in capital, to have business support and analytics and insights. Um, so we're, we're trying to create this at, at Boost and, and doing it um, across many markets. And um, taking a, a step back, you know, I didn't have that specific idea, but um, when I left Zona and after having written the book, but I, I knew how I wanted to do it. Um, and uh, this should actually be my next book of like uh, um, the importance of like starting with the how. I know Simon Sinek has a great book, Start With The Why. Like I really believe start with the how. And um, the principles, you know, first principle was um, to, to focus on a really common problem that is across all markets. Um, and I, I knew, um, you know, retail and the last mile distribution um, in Africa, there's a hundred million like micro small retail businesses um, that are offline and order and pay for their stock in cash and like buy goods out of a van or at a market. Um, and so digitizing that like kind of last mile between like distributors and retailers, um, I knew is a problem that, that could scale everywhere. And the, the kind of purpose behind that is then the ability to um, help these small businesses become part of the digital economy, which is critically important because it drives GDP growth um, and job creation. So that, that's really the purpose and mission behind the business. Um, and uh, and then figuring out like, um, you know, we could do this in a way that uh, that we can make money and then could, could scale the business and, and be attractive for investors. Um, so that, that was principle one, number one of, of focusing on that problem. Um, number two was designing the business um, for multi-country scale from scratch. Um, and th this was really important because um, starting with the technology, um, my co-founder, Will, um, our CTO, when I recruited him, I, I outlined this and said, we need to build a platform that can very easily launch into any market, work in any currency, in any segment, and it's got to be able to be adapted locally, but it, it needs to be the same everywhere. And, um, and I had a, a, an image of like um, uh, a WhatsApp image where I'm like, customers can order and then get like financial services on this. Like I just did a, 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 mock, a mock image for my very first deck. And Will was like, that sounds like a great problem to solve. Um, and I, I'm really proud to say that we were in our sixth country before he hired our second developer. So Will went out and built this. Um, and again, because we were solving a similar problem where ordering has to work the same way, managing distribution has to work the same way. But then it was, you know, we built uh, very simple ways of changing the language. So we're, you know, we're in English, French, Spanish, Arabic right now. Um, and uh, we work in different segments. So, we, you know, FMCG and Unilever is our, is our anchor, but um, we have distributors and wholesalers that, you know, work in food, um, they, uh, um, agriculture, um, even one that does cleaning supplies. Um, so we kind of tested in different segments and validated like the scalability around that. And then, um, you know, now we, we, can, we can actually create an instance for a customer anywhere in the world. So it's becoming around the st strategy of where do we want to go and who do we want to partner with, the, the tech assault. Um, and at Zona, we, we did not have that luxury, right? We had a, a fairly good sized tech team, but by the time we went into our second market, we almost had to like rebuild a new system. And then we were running parallel systems and cause it wasn't designed for scale. Um, so with, with boost, we, we did that. Um, and then on the, 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 
the whole business model was optimized for this. So um, again, we thinking in the early days around, well, if we get involved in the distribution ourselves, then it, the complexity will be too great and we'll never be able to figure out how to do this across multiple countries. So how do we find the distributors and just be enablers and make sure we're not ever in the supply chain, we are enabling the existing supply chain that happens. Um, how do we do this in a way that's as assets, you know, zero as possible, not even asset light, but critically headcount light, because if we're going to be in, in multiple countries, we need to make sure that we have really small teams and each person needs to be outstanding and experienced at their job. And then that means that we can run faster. There's less time getting aligned. It's, it's an easier challenge to like build a shared culture across a lot of different markets. Um, and, and then that kind of led us to, uh, to another challenge around, well, how do we do this during COVID and, and how do we recruit founders? And we, we designed like a really innovative model um, of having country level franchises where in each market we go into, we, you know, we're not hiring a general manager or a country director. We're actually recruiting an experienced operator who can become a, a co-founder of that business. Um, and then, you know, we provide them with like the platform, the capital, the tools, the brand, the partnerships. Um, but then we have like, you know, entrepreneurial operators who are actually making it work on the ground. Um, and then doing this remotely, we have to figure out how to bring everybody together and share, um, share this culture. And, and that's now become a big part of my job, right. Is, uh, um, is connecting everybody together. And we, we developed like a, a shared set of virtues, principles, and norms for how we work together and what our shared strategy is. And, and the acceleration of this is amazing because now, um, you know, our teams in Egypt are calling our team in South Africa and they're having conversations to solve problems together around like acquisition. Um, we're, we're seeing the models in very different markets, like have really common threads. Um, and initially, you know, everybody thinks um, all these markets are so different, which they are, but the, the process of, of, you know, business building is very common. Um, founders um, experience the same challenges, no matter what business they're building in, in whatever market, it's kind of the same steps and challenges you have to overcome. Um, and then if you're, if you're trying to solve the same problem in every market, you know, the, the market's different, but the, the problem's the same, right? So we, we, we develop different solutions, but it's, we've been amazed that like we can find something that works in Ghana and then we are able to like, it's, you know, roll out a feature across different markets that like our team in Kenya is like immediately grabs it and makes it work for them. Um, so I, I think we're getting a, a tremendous amount of leverage from this. And, you know, I, I never could have imagined doing this um, if I didn't have that experience from Zona. So it was again, like failing in order to win. It's like, you know, the, the ultimate failure or my, my penultimate failure at Zona that, that caused me to leave um, ended up like being this platform to like launch a new business that um, ne never would have existed if that experience, if I didn't have that experience. So I'm just actually very grateful for having lived through it and survived it. So you experience also with investors, lots of challenges in earlier experience, uh, earlier uh, startup experience, Zuna, which you also shared in the book. What did you do differently this time? Yeah, I, well, experience, continue to experience, Barack. <laughs> Not all investors are as enlightened and, and uh, as great as you have been. So thank you um, for, for your support. Um, you know, so the, the investor market has changed like so much. Like in the early days at Zona, um, there was 
you know, a few start like literally on, I could count on one hand and name like the number of startups in Africa pursuing, pursuing like on the other hand, a, you know, a very small handful of investors. Right. And so there was no um, marketplace. And um, what it meant though, is that it, you didn't have to go through this like pitch and rejection process. Um, it was really genuine relationship building. You know, so it was hard to like identify those investors, but, and I, I got really lucky through some introductions, but, um, and, you know, we were early adopters, but we found investors who were like interested in Africa and they didn't have a conduit of how to put money in and we were building a great business. Right. So, um, but it took time for the deals to come together. Um, and then in the later stage, um, it became very difficult because um, I think the big jump was going from like impact driven, but like very commercially savvy investors. Like there, there was a, almost a misnomer of like they're impact driven. So they don't care about, you know, making money. Like these were like proper fintech investors that, you know, backed by the likes of people, you know, eBay founders. And we, I had amazing exposure to a lot of, um, you know, a lot of coaching and people like worked at PayPal, um, you know, through the investor networks. Um, but once we got into like the series B, series C stage, we kind of then were jumping into like private equity. And um, th those investors are looking at like, you know, what's your, your, your EBITDA, you know, history over the last 24 months and trying to sell them on the vision of what this business could become. You know, we're a Zambian business becoming a digital bank for Africa, right? Um, and we're, we're doing this competing against telco-led mobile money, um, which, which was getting a lot of traction at the time. Um, people were excited, but like ultimately that became a, a big, big challenge. And we were, we were, I think, ahead of our time. And like our numbers were insane. Like we were making, you know, $2 million a month of revenue. And I, I remember investors... Um, uh, um, like saying like, oh, you're, you know, we're evaluation like at series B post series B was $50 million. And, and, uh, you know, everybody, people were saying like how expensive that was, um, you know, 2021, you had chipper cash that was like three-year-old business raised at $2 billion. And then suddenly that becomes the new anchor. Right. Um, so, so everything was very different and hard at those times. And, um, you go into the book and there's like, I'll, I'll experience a lot of the challenges and every kind of investor, like really good, amazing, super helpful ones, really quite toxic, very unhelpful ones. Um, and some that never became investors, like the, the one that pulled out of the round at the end. Um, what's changed at Boost? Um, so when I started Boost, like first there was COVID. So um, I had to like figure out like due diligence went vir virtual, which, which was actually really helpful. Um, because um, uh, before COVID, if you, if you believe this, it actually seems crazy now. I had two investors like for our pre-seed round that flew internationally to go to Ghana um, where we were doing a pilot and we had five customers. And I had to fly, I was living in Cape Town and I had to fly there and meet them. Um, and this was right before COVID. And they got there and they were like, there wasn't really much happening because we were piloting, but like the vision was very clear. And, and it was hard to do, like they did a week long due diligence trip, <laughs> like stupid, right? It's just like the amount of money. And then they, at the end, they're like, oh, we're not gonna invest, um, come back to us later. Um, but um, it was really helpful that everything went global and went virtual. Um, I found personally that I, I it's probably a, a hard surprise, but like the investors I thought would come in that I knew very well didn't. 
but um, it was like almost the, the weak connections or the weak ties. So like the people one step removed from my network um, jumped in and, and backed me. And, um, and then once we had a couple in, um, I, you know, we were able to do like a $500,000, like very early pre-seed, like angel and, and small round in, in uh, Q2 2020, like um, as, as lockdown was, was raging and that got us off the ground. Um, and then we had like this crazy period where suddenly um, Y Combinator enters into Africa, um, you know, post COVID, like uh, the, the valuation skyrocket because it's a world of cheap capital. Everybody's doing crazy rounds, like at big valuations. And that ended up not helping us. Um, I, I thought I'm like, okay, this is going to be easy to raise money now. But um, we, we had some, some um, quite strong headwinds there. So first of all, I was now like um, living in, in, like I'd moved to London. Um, we were, we launched remotely Ghana, South Africa, Nigeria. I had the, you know, the, the structure and, and we had a team together and some early traction, but um, it was hard to compete that with the narrative of like a fintech founder in Lagos who got into Y Combinator, right? That was, and so many investors were piling into to this industry for like the first time because Africa was hot, right? And it was like the next the next thing, and it was a big wave. But I was I was doing a lot of pitching to um, analysts of of like funds um, straight out of business school and. Um, you know, and never heard of Zona, like had no context of Africa, never invested in there. And it was just like, it was almost easy to say like, you know, the companies in YC raising $30 million valuation with, you know, pre-revenue, um, but they're on the ground and they're selling this like big story. It was like an easier pitch than, um, you know, I'm in, in London and we're like launched in three markets and we're running this business remotely. And, and um, I also had a lot of, uh, challenge because there were some other companies in our sector that raised big rounds um, that were in the distribution and running very like asset heavy businesses. And even the ones that were proclaiming to be asset light were very people heavy, like hundreds of employees and sales forces and, and showing like early revenue um, because they were like spending the raising the money and then burning it on people and discounts to customers and like buying products and selling, you know, at a discount as acquisition. Right. And so there were show big GMB numbers. And, and we had that as a, um, you know, our, our model. We're like, we're very capital efficient. We're, we're had a very different way of doing things. Um, and if you kind of then like jump into the next phase of what happened, a lot of those businesses, but like all of those businesses actually are, are like probably hitting walls right now. Like many are collapsing um, very sadly. I, I don't th think this is a good, you know, even competition like builds the ecosystem um, and it drives innovation and the market in Africa is so big and so untapped that I, I really think it's a bad thing for, for companies to go under. Um, but like that's kind of happened. Um, and now, now we've gone back to this world of like um, capital efficiencies back in vogue, um, traction matters, path to profitability matters. Um, and our business boost is like amazingly well positioned for this now. And, you know, we've never done a round of layoffs because we never overhired. We we're in six markets. We've got a team of 27 people globally. Um, uh, our tech team is still two, um, you know, so we're, we're extremely light and, and lean. And like, we we've never done a down round. We've always been able to raise our valuation and we've kind of done it in tranches. Um, but what's also happened now is like the, 
the bigger name investors um, have withdrawn from Africa. Um, and uh, other ones that kind of are still in, like um, like many of them have got burned from like being part of these big rounds and then like it didn't materialize because the company raised too much money and burned through it too quickly. Or, or you know, there, there's some like bad cases too of companies that didn't like, you know, like raised huge seed rounds and then didn't have the licensing to do what they were even doing in fintech, right? And stuff that experienced founders on the ground are like, yeah, we kind of could have told you this. <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, that that's the just the, the 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 school fees I think people are paying for like almost a go fast or growth at all costs mindset. Um, so anyways, I, I'm, I've gone through like these, these waves and like what I've, I've been able to do or what we, I should say, we've been able to do at Boost is um, build a community of, of really good, solid investors, initially starting small tickets, um, but like with people who can actually add value to the business and either through other investor connections or being like supporters, but like local investors on the ground who have uh, very actively helped us open markets. We have um, two investors from um, who's from Nigeria um, in their first round that actually got us a connection to Unilever and helped get our business off the ground. We've got investors in Egypt um, that actually helped us launch and boost um, launch Boost Egypt into that market um, and are playing an active role in the business. Um, in every one of our markets, we kind of have stories like that. Um, and uh, we're now at the point where there's enough proof points and enough traction that we're, we're now getting on people's radar. And, and tr you know, this is what I have always wanted to achieve is, um, you know, great businesses, they say, are, are bought and not sold. And it's the same with investors, right? It's like if you get into the point where people want to invest in you and you're not chasing the money, then then that's that's uh, that's great. And um, and I, I think we're, we're very close to being there. And the the. Irony is a founder, all founders will tell you the same thing is like when you actually no longer need the money, that's when everybody wants to give it to you. you know, so we're, we're pushing really hard um, where, where we want to be profitable. Um, and then, then we can, um, you know, take the investors we want and kind of choose our, our, own, our own path. Um, and then you also have like many different types of capital that are available to you as well. Um, but I, I'm, I'm really kind of happy in hindsight. It was hard. Like, it took me a few iterations of um, lots of pitches and lots of rejections um, and kind of figuring this out, like this whole new world. Um, I'm, I'm like in my middle ages now. So it was like no young, longer the like the young kind of, um, you know, pioneer doing this like in all by myself, like I, I was at Zona. Now there's just like a, a sorting process where investors are like, OK, you got 20 minutes, like pitch to me. Sorry, this doesn't fit onto the next call. Like, so that's, that's very different now, but being able to kind of get through like and build a community of like um, really good, solid investors and now use that as, as a network to start leveraging to the next phase. And, and that's where we are. Mike, um, to coming to the end and wrapping up, uh, are there any books or resources that especially founders uh, or uh, readers uh, should be inspired from your approach uh, lately or Evan, from your lifetime, uh, can you recommend some books? Yeah, um, uh, there, there's there's so many, hey, um, and that's a great thing. Like uh, now, the the plethora of information available on startups and entrepreneurships is is amazing. So, like, you know, I always loved the hard thing about hard things. Um, you know, it's probably it's a bit of a 
a classic now. One, one of the inspirations I had reading my book was I was like, you know what, Ben Horowitz wrote that, but he was still like a billionaire, <laughs> right? So he, he was like real failure and he talked about it, but it, like you were still successful in the end, right? So um, I, I wanted to, to make failing to win like same theme, but different. Um, but I, I think um, uh, Multipliers is a brilliant book um, as well. Um, essentialism, um, that, that's really been influential for me. Um, essentialism is, uh, you know, there's even this philosophy of how to do less with, um, or I'm sorry, how to do more with less, right? And I think that that's extremely useful. Multipliers is how to really unlock the productivity of your people. Um, because often you, you get money and people are like, okay, I need to hire a team. But, you know, that's generally like one of the worst things you should do because, um, you know, if, if you're only getting, you know, 50%, 30 to 50% capacity out of your people, um, then it will create more problems for you, right? So I, I think these these things have been very influential for me. And um, uh, one I read recently that I loved was Never Split the Difference, um, right? As, as a, uh, It's about negotiation, but it's, it's really more a philosophy of life and how to embrace saying no and embracing conflict and like really getting into like, you know, psychology. Um, and something, Barack, you, you write a lot about in, in your blogs. And, and I think, uh, like, I always love reading your things because I, I think you share a lot of this ethos. So um, those, those are some that I would share. So, uh, Mike, last question. If you have the billboard, uh, entrance of the London, <laughs> with one message to share, what would you say it? Why? Um. <clears throat> Enjoy the ride and don't be afraid to fail. Thank you, Mike, for uh, taking time uh, with me today. I, I wish you a great weekend. Thank you, Barak. Bye.